Well, please turn with me now in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read briefly as we look together at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. This will provide us a little bit of context for our Psalm of the Month. Our sermon this morning is coming from the Psalm of the Month, Psalm 54. To understand that psalm a little better, let's look briefly at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. You're now the word of the Lord. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as those who are sent by him for the punishment of of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered did not, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. Peter commands submission in two circumstances. First, verse 13. Second, verse 18. Those who are citizens of a nation should be in submission to its government. And secondly, those who are servants should be in submission to their master. But Peter here is not speaking of the ordinary obedience that one gives to those who are in authority. He is speaking about the unfulfilling, unrewarding, extremely disappointing obedience that seems unjust, unfair, and unfit. Peter says to those who are under authority, submit, even when it is of no benefit or value to you. He calls us to this tremendously difficult responsibility with two promises, with two encouragements. First, he says, you can trust your heavenly father to judge justly. Like Jesus, you can follow his example in taking up your cross and suffering the injustice of those who are in authority over you. You can submit willingly to those who are in authority, even when they are unjust. Jesus did And he proves to us that our Heavenly Father can be trusted 
to bring justice. But the second reason he gives us is Jesus himself, having borne this injustice, did so for our salvation. Ultimately, my friends, this is the answer to the problem of evil. Why do good people suffer bad things? Because that's how sinners get saved. My friends, this is the gospel truth for us. That the things we suffer are for our and others' salvation. All things work together for good. With this in mind, turn back to Psalm 54. We're going to read this morning from Psalm 54, our psalm of the month. A sweet little piece of poetry that David has given to us to sing and to pray, that we together might know how to worship our God. Psalm 54, here again, the word of the Lord. To the chief musician, with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, Is David not hiding with us? Save me, O God, by your name. And vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They do not set God before them. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble. And my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. Amen and amen. Between a long cornfield... And along Hayfield, there was a drainage ditch on the far side of our farm. And if you eased your dirt bike, hypothetically, down off the road into this drainage ditch in the heat of summer, when everything was dry, you would find a long, straight track with which to achieve maximum speed, hypothetically. There was one little problem with this drainage ditch, not so hypothetically. If you were a teenage boy and you maximized your speed, raced along, you thought to yourself, what a great little fun thing to do. And on the far end of the track, you turned around, as I did one sunny summer day. And without a thought, I was like, let's do it the other way. Fifth gear, wide open throttle, flying as fast as I could. I got three quarters of the way down the drainage ditch. Corn racing by me on the one side, the hayfield on the other. And I suddenly realized... There isn't a smooth transition where the road and culvert are. And I thought, Lord, help. And in the next moment, I remembered there's the little track of dirt next to the big black pipe where you come down. I thought maybe if I aim my front tire for that little piece of dirt, I might be able to drive up around the culvert and onto the road safely. Well, I found the piece of dirt. But I also learned that the springs compress when they strike the surface that rises in front of them. And I thought to myself, what happens when they uncompress? 
For the second time, I thought, Lord, help, as my motorcycle was airborne. Flying across the surface of the road, I'm looking down at the cornfield thinking, what do I do now? For the third time, I thought, Lord, help. With my eyes closed tight and every muscle in my body tense, I felt the tire strike. I did not see, I felt. The tire strike the road. It rolled ahead and I squeezed the brakes to a smooth stop. I fell on the ground, panting, sweating, crying and laughing, and thought, how did I do that? You see, the truth is, the Lord helps. You see, my friends, what Psalm 54 teaches us to know, to believe, to practice, is the Lord helps. Our God is a helper. He helps us. This is the gospel truth for us this morning. God is a helper. And so, my friends, let us worship Him. Let us worship Him as our helper this morning. Notice at the beginning of the psalm, there is a lengthy subtitle. Normally, there's a few brief references. This one gives us much meat with which to work. It is a psalm of David. He is the author. It is to the chief musician. That is, it is a public song for the church, belonging to all who are united to Christ, that they by faith might sing in union with him. But it also says that it is to be accompanied by stringed instruments, This word, you'll see in your little footnote, Neganoth, also appears at the beginning of Psalm 55. It appears at the beginning of several psalms scattered throughout the Psalter. This word can also be found in several other places in the Old Testament. Job chapter 30, Isaiah chapter 38, Psalm 69 verse 13, Psalm 77 verse 7. There's another one I'm forgetting. And in all those places, it is translated as having nothing to do with stringed instruments. So the word, in my opinion, pretty clearly has nothing to do with stringed instruments. In fact, all the other Old Testament contexts in which this word is used refers to someone being mocked or taunted. This is a mocking psalm. This is a taunting psalm. This is a psalm of David by which he stirs up a triumphant spirit within his heart. And he tells us, in the opening lines of this psalm, that he was in desperate need of such a psalm. For he was in a situation in which he was running from King Saul, running for his life. Saul was exerting his royal authority and his military prowess to achieve the death of David. And David was hiding in the wilderness of Ziph, in the far southeastern corner of Judah. As far removed from the center of the nation as he could. As far removed from the halls of power and wealth and privilege as he could possibly get. David was in the last little tiny corner of the church. Trying to make himself as small and insignificant as he could be. Trying to communicate literally and concretely to Saul. I am not a threat to you. I will hide here in the wilderness, in the frontier, far from wealth and power, where no one will take from you your power and your throne. And the Ziphites turn to Saul and say, Is not David right here? 
and they betray David's last sanctuary. They give up David's last hiding place. And David is now in a desperate and dire situation. The story becomes so fraught with peril that at one point David is leading his men around a hill and on the other side of the hill is Saul and his army. David is that close to coming to blows with King Saul. A military maneuver David is unwilling to do. So in other words, there is but a rock between David and death. For he is not willing to fight against his king. David is in this impossible, intractable situation. He is not willing to fight Saul. But he also doesn't want to just lay down his life and die. God has promised he would be king. Wedged between the promise of God and the providence of God, David wonders, what is God doing? And his heart is desperate. Have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced this sensation? Where you look at a question and you think to yourself, I can't even begin to imagine the answer. I am just at a loss. Where you look at two problems hemming you in and you think, there's no more road. Where do I go? You know that moment on the highway where the person is passing you on the right decides to come left and you think, where am I going to go? Here is David. His parents are hidden with the king of Moab. They have abandoned their home in Bethlehem. He has been cut off from his ancestral property. He cannot worship in Silo nor keep festival before the tabernacle. He has been effectively excommunicated by Saul's murderous intentions. And he needs something. He needs hope. He needs something to carry him through, something to give him an answer. And so he comes up by contemplation with Psalm 54. Friends, this is a psalm for us. This is a psalm for us who see no end in sight to the sin that works within us. He says, once again, sanctification seems as far away as ever. And I am no more holy today than I was last Sunday. You know that sweet Puritan practice by which they encourage you to examine yourselves Lord's Supper by Lord's Supper to see your growth in grace? How many of you guys have walked into the Lord's Supper throughout your life and thought, where is that growth? Where is it? My friends, this is a psalm for you. How many of you are fed up with the face masks, fed up with the pandemic and say, there seems to be no end? In sight. This is a psalm for you. How many of you say, My heart is broken, how long must it be in pieces? When does healing come? What does it even look like? My friends, this is a psalm for you. David writes this psalm out of the deep despair into which his soul has descended. He writes this piece of poetry that we might learn to recover and exercise faith in the most desperate places in which we find no way of escape. David is not writing as a man who can see how he gets out of this. He is writing as a man who knows the one who can get him out of this. And that is all he has. So notice he begins in verses 1 and 2 with prayer. David finds the way of escape by beginning with 
prayer. He gives his attention to God. And my friends, this is a first and critical lesson for us. We are so prone to the exercise of wisdom or effort in order to solve our problems. We study our problems. We study our available solutions. We draw out our pros and cons. We make up a spreadsheet. No complaining against you spreadsheet users. But David does not. David prays. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. He says, Father, listen to me. He gives his attention to the God of heaven who is able to do something about it. And he asks for two things. Save me and vindicate me. By save, he means get me out of the situation. By vindicate, he means get me out of the situation in such a way that everyone will know that I have conducted myself righteously. David remains passionately committed to a righteous escape from his predicament. He does not want to get out if it means sin, if it means selfishness. No, Father, only let me out in a way that preserves my righteousness. Let me not resort to sin. But notice he asks for an exercise of his strong name. Oh God, save me by your name. By the strength of your name, the value of your name. David is wearing a sword. Not just any old sword. He is wearing the biggest, baddest, most heroic sword the nation of Israel has ever seen. It's Goliath's sword. He cut Goliath's head off with it. But David does not turn to his sword and say, O Lord, make my sword sharp and strong. He turns to God and he says, By the strength of your name, by the truth of your character, by the reality of who you are, save me. He pins all his hope and expectation of deliverance on the character and person of God. This is why prayer must be our first step. This is why prayer is such an important answer to all our problems. My friends, we are so apt to underestimate God and overestimate the world. We are so prone to think so much of our sin and so little of our Savior. And it is prayer that teaches us to reverse it. It is prayer that teaches us to see God as He really is. To pay attention to Him and not ourselves and not our problems and not our world. In prayer, we step back from ourselves. We step back from our sins and our sorrows. And we see our God. We see the strength of His name. We see the hope of His name. This last week, I've mentioned to you before, I came in and went into the study and I had just come back from this weekend where we have buried and mourned coach and there was so many emotions and so much stress and the last thing I wanted to do was work on a sermon for you guys no offense and I went into my study and I I have this habit of opening my Psalter and and I have a bookmark in there for the next psalm and I open it up to Psalm 17 I told one of you this story already and I looked at Psalm 17 and I was like oh no not that one that's the wrong one And I remembered a pastor friend who said to me, it's never the wrong one. So I went ahead and I prayed Psalm 17. And when I was done, my heart was finally in the right place. You see, my friends, we don't change the world when we pray, we change ourselves. You see, my friends, we don't change the plan, the eternal, immutable plan of God when we pray. We change ourselves. 
We align ourselves to the truth of God's name, to the strength of his character, to the reality of his existence. We get out of the muck and the mire of our own minds and we enter into the majesty of God. This is why we pray first. This is why David prayed first. Having prayed, David is then prepared and equipped to recognize the reality of his problem. He wakes up, he opens his eyes, he looks out onto the world, and he says to his heavenly father, I have two problems. Strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors seek for my life. These two problems have the same source. They do not set God before them. The strangers that he speaks of rising up are surely the Ziphites. Now, strictly speaking, the Ziphites are not strangers. They're actually David's neighbors. He's been living in the wilderness of Ziph. He's been doing business in their town. They know him. He knows them. That's why they're able to reveal his secret locations to the king Saul. They're not strangers. But they're treating him like they are strangers. They are showing him no neighborly kindness. They are giving him no familial affection. To make matters worse, Ziphites are Judeans. They're of the tribe of Judah. Some of these guys are probably David's relatives. They are abandoning and betraying him. The oppressor is surely Saul and his army. Who is given royal authority in order to defeat the enemies of God, the Philistines and the Canaanites. Instead, Saul spends all his time chasing David. In fact, the only thing that gets David out of this pickle is when messengers come running down to the wilderness of Ziph to say to Saul, the Philistines have invaded. And so Saul has to go back and do his real job, which is dealing with Philistines. But every time Saul gets a break from Canaanites and Philistines, he comes back to chasing David. He is an oppressor. He abuses his authority to oppress David. David has the weight of Saul's authority bearing down on him. And because he respects Saul's anointing, he cannot fight back. He must submit to the oppression. In like manner, he has these strangers, these Ziphites, who are supposed to be his friends and allies. At least they could play neutral. Instead, they become his betrayers, and they are all around him. You see the hopelessness of David's condition. This psalm, this prayer, arises in his heart Not because he can see a way forward, but because he feels trapped. He has no way out. But he notices one critical difference between him and his enemies. For he calls them his enemies in verse 7. He says here in verse 3, they have not set God before them. This is the critical flaw of my enemies, say David. They do not recognize the role of God in this relationship. They do not see God high and lifted up. They do not imagine him concerned with the welfare of David. They do not think God cares. This, my friends, is the power of prayer in the heart and mind of David. He does see God. He looks at the problem and he sees all the faults and flaws. He knows that he's on the backside of this rock and Saul's army is on the other side and the Ziphites are around betraying his safety. He knows he's in deep trouble and peril and deadly danger, but he also knows God is watching. He also knows that God is listening. God is there and part of the process. 
these enemies are advancing upon them because they believe God doesn't care. They believe God is disinterested. He is gone. It is not true. This is the reality our faith must embrace. There is a God, a God we must set before our eyes, a God in whom we can trust and hope. For it is this reason that David plants his one and only Selah right here in the middle of the psalm. Stop. This is what Selah means. Pause. Slow down. Think about this for a minute. The great good in David is that when he was in trouble, he turned to God and faced him and prayed to him. The great evil in his enemies is that they will not set God before him. The difference in this humanity, this division of humanity, is those who will see God and put their faith in him and those who will not. But notice also That on this hinge, this fulcrum, the entire psalm tips. Having then laid out for us the great trouble he is in, that he would cry out to the Lord in prayer, David now begins to ascend. The Selah sits at the bottom of the psalm, in the very pit of despair, as it were, in which the Selah cries out to us, They have not set God before them, but behold, God is my In verse 4, David announces that the thing his enemies will not see, he himself invites us to see. Dear church, do you see God is your helper? Can you see God helping you? Can you, with the eyes of faith, not flesh, imagine his help in this awful situation where you imagine no escape? This is what faith is. To believe that God helps in the most dire circumstances and is sure to deliver no matter how much we cannot imagine it. This is a tremendous blessing that our faith is to us. It is an instrument of sanctified imagination. That we can see by faith solutions that the flesh cannot imagine or dream. This is why we are given such poetry as this. Psalm 54. A song and a poem that ignites the imagination to say, do you not know God is a helper? This is a word in which David is drawing a long line of rich meaning. Do you know who the first helper is in Scripture? Eve. In Genesis chapter 2, God says of Adam, he is alone and it is not good. I will make for him a helper. One devoted to sharing his mission. One devoted to seeking his welfare. And in chapter 2, verse 20, among all the animals, no helper comparable or suitable was found. When David draws on this image and metaphor, he says in verse 4, Look, I have a helper. I have a God who is my helper. One who is devoted to my welfare. One who is devoted to my good. This is the truth that changes us from despair to hope. This is the truth that beats at the heart of our psalm. Look, my friends, look with me, Christ David. Look with the eyes of faith. Look with spiritual imagination. God is a helper. 
One devoted to your well-being. One devoted to your good. He is with those who uphold my life. This statement, an explanation of the kind of help that David has received, is enriched by the historical context of our psalm. Because the one piece of the Ziphite story that I have left out, because I was saving it for this verse, is that it is in this story, when David is on the run from Saul, being betrayed by the Ziphites, escaping only because God providentially sends in the Philistines at just the right time to lead Saul away, it's in the middle of that story that Jonathan comes down and strengthens David in the Lord. The Lord is my Jonathan, my friend. The Lord is my helper, whom he is with all those who are with me. Saul has come down and he just cannot reach David. But Jonathan can hug him. All the Ziphites have betrayed his location, but Saul cannot find him. Jonathan can As a friend and as a helper, Jonathan stands as a token of the love of the Lord. This, my friends, is a fact for all the faithful to lay hold of. He has never carried you through sin or sorrow and left you destitute of some token of grace. We just seldom see them. Because we do not pray. Because we do not trust. Because we do not wait. When we hurt, we strive against the pain. We pop the pill. We do anything to get out. Anything but pray. But David, having prayerfully settled his heart before the face of God, having cast before God all his cares, is able to see Jonathan as he really is. A token of divine love. A friend sent by the Spirit of God to strengthen him in the Lord. The Lord is my helper. Jonathan's name does not appear in the psalm. For Jonathan is but an instrument. And God gets the glory. It is God who has helped him. Who has sent Jonathan to bear up his soul. My friends, this very day you have before you something you can see that says God is your helper. Can you see it? It's a little lower, and some of you are sitting in the back. Most of you. But it's right here, and I'll pick it up for you after the sermon. And I will say to you exactly what David says. Look. Do you see that the Lord is your helper? Do you see the token of grace to which he has provided you a symbol of love, a sign of affection that you might know in the darkest and most despairing hour, He is a helper. He is your helper. David then sees this help as expressed not only in the coming of Jonathan, but in the removal of his enemies. He says, I, He will repay my enemies for their evil and cut them off in their truth. Again, David is in a position where he is unwilling to answer the evil of Saul with fighting. He is not willing to fight back. He will only run away. And so he leaves his enemies in the capable hands of his heavenly father. And says, you will deal with them in your time. 
Father, you judge justly. I'm going to go over here and worship you. But notice also in verse 5, he says, cut them off in your truth or in your faithfulness. By this, I I believe David is speaking truth of the promise he was given that he would be king. David's confidence in the promise of God does not undo the fear and the difficulty of his providence. But in like manner, the unsettledness of his suffering does not undo his confidence in God's promise. He believes that God speaks the truth. And so if God says he's going to be king, then he's going to be king. And it's up to God to work out the details. David's going to be busy having prayer time. David's going to do what matters. He's going to worship. My friends, this is the heart the psalm trains us to have. To be someone who believes in the promises of God. That when we are overwhelmed by the weight and the relentless nature of our sin and say sanctification is far from me. We grab hold the promise of God that says, I will deliver you wholly perfect as my heavenly father is perfect into glory. We say, okay, I don't see how you get from here to there, but you said it, so I'll trust you. He says, I will work all things to your good for those who trust me. And we say, okay, I don't see how this is good, but you said it, I will trust you. David believes that the truth that will preserve him will remove his enemies. My friends, do you know the promises of God? Do you pray them? Let me give you a little pointed application, a little teaser. Damien has made a slight change to the prayer guide tonight. There are prayer requests and praises based on this psalm in the guide. So those of you, this is like totally like tempting, free teasing, like come, join the Zoom meeting tonight at 6 p.m. and you will see prayer requests and praises based on this psalm so that the psalm might train us and teach us how to pray. How to pray the promises of God. How to pray that the promises of God are yea and amen. That he will surely help us. He has been our helper and will be our helper. And we need not fear. His truth stands firm. Though all the world should be moved. And should fall. Because this is sure. David having borne his soul into the depths of his despair. Having set his attention on God most high. Can now come. Verse 6. To that which he will be doing in the meantime. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. This is an extraordinary statement for somebody living in the wilderness who has no access to the tabernacle. He says, I will freely sacrifice to you. He cannot possibly do this. Not yet. But with faith, he expects deliverance. But with faith, he anticipates worshiping in the tabernacle very soon. And he waits upon the promise of God to be fulfilled. In like manner, beloved, we can say to the Lord, and I shall worship you face to face. For though I am not yet dead, I know that in my death I shall live forever. This is the kind of confidence David is exercising in this most hopeless situation. Beneath the oppressive rule of Saul, surrounded by the betrayal of the Ziphites, he still sees God. And believes that God sees him and says, I will freely sacrifice to you. 
We have much greater freedom than David. We can freely sacrifice to him anytime we want. No blood is necessary. Thanks to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we need not go to Shiloh. We need not wait till we are restored to the Ark of the Covenant. No, at any moment, in the darkest of your days, in the longest of your nights, you have but to open your mouth and bring forth the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips. In like manner, he says, I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. It is a good name. This name that he promises to praise is the name on which he called in verse 1. He begins the psalm by saying, save me by your strong name. He ends in verse 6 by saying, I will praise your good name. This name is both strong, able to save, and good, willing to save. This is a name that has indeed saved him in the midst of the Ziphites, has indeed called away Saul to do this business with the Philistines. It has again and again and again delivered David out of all his troubles. This is a good name. And in verse 4, we are told what that name is. The Lord is a helper. His name is Helper. He is the Lord who helps. He is a friend to the friendless, a father to the widow. He is the one who is known by his character, a God of love and of grace, of kindness and of mercy. This is who he is, a Savior. He saves. This is the good name, the name of Jesus Christ. This is the strong name, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess. This is the good, strong name of our God. His name is Jesus. And it is a good, strong name. So David commits himself to worship. I love this final image. We'll end here in verse 7. He has delivered me out of all my troubles. It seems David has leapt forward in the psalm to the point in which he is a king, sitting in his palace, sitting with his fellow prophets and musicians, composing Psalm 54. He reflects on the fact that he has delivered him out of all his troubles. At this point, he must surely only be speaking of his troubles with Saul, because anyone who knows the life of David knows that arriving in the palace in Jerusalem was only the start of a whole other set of troubles. David's life was never trouble-free, and neither will yours be. Beset by many troubles, he has this psalm that trains him to pray, that trains him to trust, that trains him to believe God is a helper, and to believe that he will deliver him out of all his troubles, even as he has already delivered him out of all his troubles. And so David concludes, my eye has seen, in the Hebrew it's simply, My eye has looked upon all my enemies. Its desire is added in there by your translators. It's not in the Hebrew. The metaphor that I think David has in mind is not simply that he has seen the triumph and the victory, but rather he has learned to look at the world triumphantly, and he has learned to look at present problems victoriously. This is the key for our faith today. Yes, my friends, verse 7 will be fulfilled in your life when you get to glory and finally can say, truly, he has delivered me out of all troubles. 
It will be fulfilled finally and entirely in your life. When you get to the highest heavens with the great and glorious God and can say, my eye has seen all my enemies. But my friends, until then, David has given us Psalm 54 to teach us and to train us to look with the eyes of heaven while still stuck on earth. To teach us to see this world triumphantly and victoriously even when we feel beset by many foes. David, I think, here has in mind that day in the wilderness of the Ziphites when he went up onto the top of the rock and watched the retreating army of Saul going after the Philistines and suddenly realized the situation he believed to be hopeless was just a simple matter for God. That all the overwhelming problems that drown us in fear and despair are but a simple gesture for God. My friends, sometimes our sins are too great, our sorrows too many, and our God too small. And it's times like that that we need Psalm 54. We need Psalm 54 to come visit our hearts. To come visit our minds and our mouths and to restore to us the splendid goodness of the name of God and to recover for us a true and lasting hope in his goodness and love. Beloved, can you look on your enemies and see victory? In Christ, you can Because God is a helper. God helps. And so friends, worship Him. Let us learn to pray and worship that we might see God as He is and see the world as it is. Beloved, God is a helper. Worship Him. Please pray with me. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for this beautiful day. We thank you for this beautiful psalm. We thank you for the great Savior Jesus Christ who is presented to us. We thank you that it is his name that is above every name. A name that is strong and mighty to save. A name that is good and full of love and compassion. A name that helps. We pray, O God, that you would forgive us. That we get so lost. And the sin and sorrow of this life that we see you so little. Oh God, thank you for this psalm that teaches us to see you again. To remember you. To know you are there and you will work your salvation. Oh God, give us today confidence in your promises. Hope in your help. And Father, today give us peace in our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.